thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we are looking at chapters 19 and 20 in the book of Numbers. And they are very powerful chapters. We're going to go through six sections, three from the chapter 19 and three from chapter 20. We're going to look at the sacrifice of the red heifer, the purification by sprinkling. Then we're going to look at the walk from Kadesh to the steps of Moab. Then we move to the sin of Aaron and Moses, the encounter with Edom, and the death of Aaron. So you can tell we're getting closer to... So this is the beginning of the end of the book. And um, chapter 19 in particular is uh, very uh, poignant for a number of reasons. I'm going to read through it a little bit. Um, I hope that as we move through the study, you're in lockstep with me. You're actually reading these chapters and spending a little time meditating on them because it makes it easier to go through the scriptures when you've had time to uh, study it a little bit ahead of time. Now the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect. Now you know what a heifer is. No? <laughs> It's a cow. Heifer, heifer. Right? It's a cow. It's a red cow. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little later. Without defect, in which there is no blemish, and upon which a yoke has never come. And you shall give her to Eleazar the priest, and she shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of her blood with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood toward the front of the tent of the meeting seven times. And a heifer shall be burned in his sight. Her skin, her flesh, and her blood with her dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet stuff and cast them into the midst of the burning of the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterwards he shall come into the camp. And the priest shall be unclean until evening. He who burns the heifer or heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. Now, from now on, verses 9 and forward, he gives a statute about uncleanliness. So he says, And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the people of Israel, for the water, for impurity, for the removal of sin. 
And he who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be to the people of Israel and to the stranger who sojourns among them a perpetual statute. Following, there are a number of rules about uncleanness. We're going to talk about that. He who touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water of the third day on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of any man who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel, because the water for impurity was not thrown upon him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which has no cover fastened upon it is unclean. Whoever is in the open field touches one who is slain with a sword or a dead body or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. For the unclean they shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering and running water shall be added in a vessel. Then the clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tent and upon all the furnishings and upon the persons who were there and upon him who touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day and the seventh day. Thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse himself and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and in the evening he shall be clean. But the man who is unclean and does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, since he has defied the sanctuary of the Lord, because the water for impurity has not been thrown upon him. He is unclean, and it shall be perpetual statute for them. He who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. And whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. What's the key word? 17 times in 22 verses. The word unclean is used. Okay. What is this all about? Um, this particular, before I go through the comments step by step, I, I, I'm hoping that as you integrate scripture in your lives, these texts come to life without any need to read commentary. Because... The more you see these images repeat, the more you, you understand their meaning, the literal meaning, the more the text comes to life on its own. And it's very, very powerful and very poignant at the same time. Okay. There is here mention of a red heifer. Now, a red heifer or a heifer is a brown cow. In Hebrew, there is no word for brown. So red is used instead. There is no such thing as a red cow. Red as in bright red. Or the red of a stoplight. You'll never find a cow that color. But you do find brown cows. However, to find a brown cow which has no speckle of black or white or one whose hair is completely brown without any black in it is extremely rare. Very difficult to find a cow of that kind. Notice in the text there was mention of hyssop and cedar wood and some of that red stuff. Okay? 
Where have you heard of hyssop? Let's see your knowledge of Scripture. This is where knowledge of Scripture becomes very critical to understand the text. Passover. Passover. Okay, where and on the cross, Rachel? On a? On the hyssop. Yes. On the hyssop reed. St. John mentions the hyssop reed. Okay, so notice now, this is called intertextual echo. There's an echo. You hear, you hear hyssop, that word provokes in your mind an echo that brings you forward to something that will happen in Jesus' time on the cross. Then you ask yourself this question. Why did St. John mention it is made out of hyssop? Was he interested in carpentry at this moment in the gospel? Why did he mention hyssop? It is important because it brings us backward to another seminal event, which was the sacrifice of Isaiah by Abraham. God told Abraham, do not sacrifice your son. Here is the substitute, which was what? No, it was not... Thanks. Goat. A ram. And the ram was caught in what? In the hyssop bush. It's not stated in scripture, by the way, that it's hyssop. It's known through tradition that it was a hyssop bush. A bush. A thorny bush. Yes. So now watch how the inner textual echo starts to run a thread through these three texts, which are all connected in a very important way. Now, what is the color of the ram? Say that again? The ram. Yeah, no, ram. White. 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 What is the color of the heifer in this case? Red. Brown. Red. Okay. The ram is white. Right? And what does the ram symbolize? What, what is the symbol of a ram? Grace. Power. What is the symbol of a heifer or a cow in general? What do you do with a cow? Plow. It carries a yoke. Yeah? What is the word you would use in Latin when you speak of a yoke? Patir. Translated in English... Passion. So, white ram symbolizing power, red heifer carrying a yoke. Is that starting to coalesce into the passion of Jesus Christ? Yeah? Okay. Notice how the images play when you know them and you are meditating on Scripture and asking the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Notice how the text comes to life and tells you, gives you an intuition into what God is all about. Yes. There is no mention of the cross being made out of a hyssop, that's for sure. Uh, no. See, the, the cedar, that's a very good point, but the cedar is also problematic because back then, cedar was only known in Lebanon, really. So what probably they mean is cypress. But they use it generically, to mean a whole bunch of different trees. Yeah. So, 
It could be pine, it could be something else. Exactly. It's a family of trees. Yeah. So we think they used it this way. Uh, because where are you going to find cedar in the wilderness? Uh, no, it's not really easy. Right? They don't grow, I mean, usually they grow high up in the mountain and they need snow and water and that kind of stuff to grow a cedar. We're not talking about the cedar we find here either. We're talking about trees, the girth of which will require 10 men to surround. I mean, the cedars are huge. They're very big, and some of the oldest trees alive are cedar trees. Okay. So do you notice how this, there's an interplay now between all of those? So what is required? Why red? Why red? Why is God asking for a red heifer? Blood. Yeah. So when they see him all bloodied, carrying the cross, they'll recognize the red heifer. You understand? For some, of course it did. Not all. Because their minds were not open and their heart were not open to scripture. But for some, yeah, they recognized him as... They put all these texts together. My point to you this and, and right now is that familiarity with Scripture and familiarity with the image of Scripture is essential for your imagination to be open to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If in your imagination there is only you know, a couple of images and they're really far away from each other, your guardian angel and the Holy Spirit have very little to work with. So you read and you think, where is God not inspiring me? Well, you've got to help Him a little bit. Yeah? Yes. Well, generally speaking, the ram symbolizes power because the horn of the ram has always been associated with power. Yes, because Jesus, being the ram, is all-powerful. And he's white, representing his purity. The red heifer is the one carrying the yoke. There aren't many rams that you use to put a yoke on. It's really difficult to get a ram to actually till anything. Not going to work, right? You need a cow or a bull, right, to do the work. Right? So he, 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 he specifically asked for one that is red because of the change between the two. Right? And the hyssop is a tie-in. It ties these images together. Okay? Yes. The yoke that you put on, literally the physical device you put on the, uh, on the cow or on a bull when they're actually tilling the ground, these heavy pieces of wood, literally in Latin means passion. That's, the, that's where passion comes from. The word passion comes from that device. You see it now? Yeah? Okay. So when you have these texts in your mind, you read this and you stand and you just contemplate the images, there's this intertextual echo that happens and you go, whoa, alright. I see what God's long-term goal is here. There is an immediate goal that he's teaching them, which is what? Uncleanness. Right? What is he trying to drill in their heads? You know, back to the literal meaning now. What is he trying to drill in their heads? Yeah, but one particular kind of, um, of um, sin. So, let's go through this text now um, in the literal sense. First, in verse 1, you notice that he says, The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron. And the idea is that the instructions are given to Moses alone. But when the instruction changes from words to action, it is addressed to Aaron. He's the one who carries them forward. He implements them. But the instructions are given first to Moses as the prophet. Now, the reason why 
according to the Jews, a red heifer would have been picked, is really to increase, if symbolically, the amount of blood in the ashes, to make the ashes more reddish. That's the, that's the intent behind it. As I said, uh, red means brown, because there is no such word for it in the Hebrew. And having brown cows, you have plenty of those, but having one which is completely uniform in color, without specks of white or black, or without ever even two black or white hairs, is extremely rare. What is that indicating then? It is really extraordinary. It takes something out of the ordinary. Hence, the notion that it takes someone who is extraordinary to do what needs to be done, which is Jesus Christ. No yoke has been laid. What is it? Why? When a yoke has been laid on a heifer, what are you using the heifer for? To work in the field. Therefore, this work is called what? Profane. What does profane mean? From the Latin, profanum. Phanum is the temple. Pro, outside. Outside the temple. Something is profane when it is when it does not belong to the temple, per se. Profane does not mean bad. Hmm? Beer is good. Or maybe not Budweiser, but <laughs> beer is good. Beer is profane. You don't bring beer inside the church. Yeah? A conversation with a friend over a movie you saw is good. It's profane. You don't bring it into the church. Yeah? Flip-flops and everyday clothing are good. Allow you to relax and feel comfortable. They're profane. You don't bring them into the church. What is important here isn't so much a list of what is profane and what is not. It's really a state of mind. It's a state of the heart to know that you are entering a holy and sacred place. And that therefore your clothing, your behavior, your attitude should reflect that you are entering a holy place. All right. So therefore, it must not be profane. It must be a cow on which you've laid no yoke. Representing what? The sinlessness of Jesus. That he was completely innocent. The heifer has to be profane? Yes. No, no, no. The heifer must not be profane. Precisely. You could not have used it to... Work your, your field. Now, in the sacrificial system of Israel, it was completely acceptable to take an animal farm, an animal, um, a farm animal, an animal you worked in the field, and offer it as a sacrifice. You could do that. It was acceptable. God never said, you only offer animals that have never been yoked. Never said that. But in that case, you couldn't. In general, the firstling, when you offer a firstling, it could never be worked. Again, representing, obviously, the firstborn, Jesus. Uh, notice, by the way, these rules are not something that God is making up as He goes. He's using a lot of what is contextual. Among the Hittites, for instance, among the Hittites, um, offering an animal as a sacrifice, which you have actually worked, was considered to be a capital crime. You'd, be, you'd have your, your head chopped off over this. You just could not go and offer 
an animal that has been working in the Hittite uh, um, system. Now, the God says, let the priest Eleazar do this, right? And you shall give her to Eleazar the priest. So, who is Eleazar? Let's see how much you've been able to keep track of your family. Very good. Aaron, oldest son. So, why do you give it to Eleazar? Because he is what now? He is the high priest. Only the high priest can officiate in this case. Symbolizing that as a high priest who condemned Jesus Christ. You see that? You see how the typology works? And if you were standing there watching the, 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 the judgment unfold during the night. Jesus standing there. Being condemned. Brought to Pilate. Scourged. Brought back. And you see him all bloodied. And the high priest condemning him. And you see him carrying the yoke. If you were open to the word of God and studying it as you ought, according to the Hebrew Jewish liturgical cycle, they had a cycle of three years, like we have it in the Latin rite. They also had a cycle of one year, like we have it in Eastern churches. They had the two cycles, where they read the scriptures and meditated upon them. You would have seen it. You see that? Now, what is that ritual then? It was a ritual of burnt purification. Burned purification. The purpose of it, therefore, is to purify, to purify those who are unclean. Only the ashes mixed of the red heifer mixed with water could be used to purify those who are unclean. Particularly those who've touched what? Dead bodies. You understand? The only way to give life to the dead is through that sacrifice. I'm hoping you start to understand why Jesus had to tell the disciples of Emmaus. I mean, this is what Jesus did, right? He opened the scriptures to them. He showed them him in the scriptures, walking with them. By the way, the ashes should now, hopefully you start to put, you're starting to put the ashes in context. Right when you go and you stand in line during the the uh, during um, uh, on Ash Monday or Ash Wednesday, those ashes, although we don't use the red heifer, are also a symbol, a representation of that ceremonial here, and the ashes therefore are what? What do they represent? The death of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the red heifer. Okay? It is through His death and resurrection that you're given life. And you're signed. What do they do? They take ashes and mix it with what? Oil? Whiskey? No. Water. Just water. Why? That's exactly what the ritual calls for. Ashes and water. Alright. Now, they have to add cedar wood, hyssop, and the crimson stuff. This is the same material that is used in the purification of the leper and other purification rituals throughout the Near East. So the Mesopotamian ritual, um, when they sacrificed the bull, they sprinkled it with cedar balsam, burned with cedar wood, and buried in a red cloth. Okay, so that would, presumably in these cultures, it had a magical connotation to it. It had some power assigned to these objects they're doing here. Here, they're completely 
uh, emptied of that. Right? They're emptied of that meaning. Uh, but they're still carried forward. The key, which is very interesting to us, is that that crimson stuff, you know what, when he says stuff, he doesn't mean, I don't know what the word is, as we do today. And stuff. What is the real meaning of stuff? Do you know? Pardon? No. That's the modern meaning of stuff. No. That's the modern meaning of stuff. The... The original meaning of stuff is really cloth. It's a kind of cloth called stuff. Stuffing, com- stuffing is not related, actually. You mean food stuffing? Or? No. Yeah, yeah that, but, but actually, in a specific context, it, it had a very... Um, it's really crimson yarn, all right, which was um, uh, literally red-dyed uh, wool which was, and the dye was extracted from a crimson worm and used in the weaving of the sacred garments of the high priest and the inner curtain of the temple. These are the two key elements. The same material is used in the weaving of the clothing of the high priest and the color red on the curtain of the, high, the temple. So therefore, um, you know there are specific elements being added to the mix to represent... Right, who Jesus is. The hyssop is his passion, his suffering. The red chrysanthemum stuff is his priesthood and the fact that he's the temple. Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the cedar is what? It represents the good perfume, the incense. The fact that his sacrifice is acceptable before God. But it takes eyes of faith to see that in the physical gestures that are being performed. Notice how God teaches His people catechism through the sacrificial system. Because what you do teaches you far more than what you hear. When you perform a gesture over and over again, you learn way more, even without noticing, than when you actually try to study it. And the proof is in the pudding. Most of us can use English. Most of us, or many of us, have no clue what the grammatical rules are. Most of us can bike, and most of us have no clue what the physical rules governing biking are. And on and on it goes. Yeah? Most of us go to Mass, and most of us have no clue what's going on during Mass. All right. So someone who has, who is in a state of impurity, so notice, being impure doesn't mean you have committed a sin. It doesn't mean you've done something wrong. This is very different from our understanding of impurity. Your neighbor's old elderly father died. You help your neighbor bury his father. What is that? That's a corporate act of mercy, isn't it? You're doing the right thing. What are you? You're unclean. Can you wrap your mind around something like this? You're helping your neighbor prepare food. So, you're, they're preparing lamb. They're doing a lamb kebab. What are you? You're unclean. You're going through your normal cycle. Where are you? You're unclean. 
Absolutely. Everybody's unclean. You're in a room where somebody's dead, and there are three pots of flour that are open. The three pots with flowers in them. What do you have to do with the pots of flour? Destroy them. You cannot wash unclean objects. You left a, 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 a pot open where you had letters that a friend wrote to you, or your husband, or your, or your fiancé wrote you letters, and you have them in there. And there's a dead person in the room. What do you do? You burn them. You destroy all of those. They're unclean. Can you wrap your mind around this? Just try to first absorb what it means. Look at this room right now. We are in right now. If there was a dead person here, let's see, how much does my wife leave open here? Actually, she's in pretty good shape. I can't see many things that are open. But if there were open containers of any sorts, you throw them away. No, containers. We're talking about living things, right? Yeah. They'd be all unclean. Well, the, the pot, it's open. So we're talking about earth, er, um, earthware, all made out of earth, right? Because it's open, it's unclean. You have, to, you, have, you have to destroy it. You cannot go to the temple precinct. Yes. Yes. So these are called the sort of ritual uncleanness would, would only last for the day. At the end of the day, you had to wash your garments first, then bathe, in that order, because if you bathed, and you touch the garments, okay, back to jail, don't go through, don't collect 200, right? Doesn't work. So you're going to have to be careful in the process that you follow. Yeah? Yeah. You think you have it hard now because you have to go to confession? Yeah. So these would only last a day until sunset. You're unclean. You understand now when Jesus gave them that uh, parable of the Samaritan man, the Samarian the Samaritan going down, he got beaten. He's laying, what, what does he have on him? Blood. So what are you going to do? It's not just, oh, I don't like that guy. No, it's a mess. You're going to be unclean. For who? For a Samaritan? Forget it. So what is Jesus telling them to do? Be unclean. To uphold the law. Now that is the worst scandal you could ever create. What do you mean? How can I uphold the law of God if you're asking me to be unclean? They didn't get it. They didn't get, why? They became legalistic. It's like today when we talk about the veil. Talk to the veil up to the women. Most of them start bombarding me with these questions. Well, which canon law should we follow? Is it the canon law of 1967 or the canon law of 1981? Or the most recent canon law? Because in 1967, they said when a woman goes to church, she has to put a veil on. But in 1981, they kinda, it was still there. But now the most recent one, they dropped it. So which one do they have to follow? And I'm thinking, you're missing the point completely. God doesn't want you to put the veil when you go to church because you're going to follow a law. You're becoming pharisaic in your approach. If you don't understand the aura of Mary, you don't understand the holiness of her heart, you don't understand what imitation of Mary means, don't put the veil. There's no point. It's from the heart. You understand? So be careful not to fall into what some of the most conservative Catholics fall into. They just do the, the, the Mass to the letter all the way through. But the heart is not there. They scoff at the 
at the Novus Ordo because it's whatever. I mean, no, you cannot do that. Be careful. Because it'd be ten, it, we have a tendency, we would love to know that in order to go to heaven, it's A plus B equals C. Right? I do this, I do that, I do that, another thing, and, phew, and I'm done. That's it. Check, I'm going to heaven, it's over. God's saying, you're missing the point. You're supposed to be my children. How would you like it if you lived in a house where your father comes to you and says, all right, for you to be a good, good kid today, here's the checklist. Do those things and I'll approve you as a good kid. You'd like that, would you? Yeah. Never I love you. Never a hug. Never a kiss. Never a tender look. Never a smile. Never, no matter what you do, I'm always there for you. Would you like that? All right. Okay, now we're talking. That's exactly what I'm saying. God, Jesus told us, let your will be done. It is doing the will of the Father. It's a living relationship. But back then, he has to impose all these restrictions on them for a number of reasons. Number one, blood is always, always, always connected with magic. Magic. Magical rituals. Yes. 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 In all world, everywhere. You go anywhere you go, you blood is connected with magic. The demons demand blood. Okay? So, they are coming out of Egypt and they are connected to that stuff. Right? God needs to wean them from it. Right? And He's doing it by using those things that they're familiar with and changing the interior meaning of them. He keeps the appearance the same. The essence of it has changed. Does that remind you of something? Yes. Scripture is Eucharistic from beginning to end, if you can see it. He's constantly doing that. He gives them what they need, but wraps it in what they can handle. Yeah? It's to teach them fundamental, get them ready to prepare. Well, Number one, in the context in which they are living, the notion is you just cannot approach the Lord your God any whichever way. You're not in control. In magic, what is the distinction between a magician and a priest? Very simple. A magician commands. Right? A priest implores. A priest has no power and no control. A magician is completely in control. A magician makes the deity or the spirit he's, he's uh, calling do his or her bidding. A priest has no power. He implores. That's the fundamental difference between the two. And it's a very important one. So, he needs to wean them off that kind of attitude. You're not in control. You just can't do sacrifice something and hope I'm going to come and give it to you. Right? And we ourselves then have that kind of attitude sometimes. Okay, Lord, I did my chores. I went to church. I said my rosary. Okay, I did all these things. Now it's your turn. Deliver on the goods. Okay? That's a magical attitude. That's an attitude where we want to control God. It doesn't work this way. Right? It doesn't work this way. So that's what he's trying to do. He's weaning them off of this thing, teaching them his holiness. That's the second thing he's doing. Right? 
And he has to be very radical about it, because this is the truth. You are not in any state to approach me. Anyone who approaches me who is not in a state of grace dies. My presence cannot, cannot um, um, suffer sin. So you must be holy to approach me. And Jesus made it a command. Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Right? And what did he really mean by that? What did Jesus mean when he said, Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy? You know what he mean? He meant? It's very simple. Recite the Our Father the way Jesus recited it. Pardon? That's it. That's it. Doing God's will. What does that mean? Well, you're driving and you're already late for an appointment and um, that nitwit right ahead of you who's tailgating crashes in the car in front of him and now you're stuck and you're going to miss your appointment. The way you react on that spot, if you can react with complete indifference, with holy indifference, then you're doing God's will. If you can accept that as God-loving will for you on that moment and rejoice in it, you're doing God's will. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's what Jesus meant when He said, your will be done. He didn't mean your will like the Constitution in 3,000 years from now will come down on a plate of gold and will subdue the whole world. He means you're, you're working at home and you're trying to get your house in order and somebody knocks at the door and you're not ready. How would you react? He means you failed an exam. How do you react? Is it all tears and it's the end of the world and you feel all miserable about yourself? Or do you accept it at God's will for you? And on and on it goes. That's what we're talking about. That's what he's training them to do without grace. And then that's what he gave us. The grace to do his will. That's why the prayer of our Lord could not have been said by the Jews. Neither Jews nor Muslims nor Buddhists nor anyone out there can say this prayer other than us. Because it is a sacramental prayer that requires the Eucharist to make it real. You understand that? Yeah. No, no. What I'm talking about is not whether you can have power over demonic forces. Right? I'm talking about the deity. A priest stands before God and he has no power over God. A magician stands before a deity of sorts and he's doing an incantation to coerce this deity to do his bidding. Okay. He is in control. That's the attractiveness of magic. Okay. Well, it's not, he doesn't think he's ser they're serving him. He thinks he's in control. Obviously, he's being deceived, but they're more than happy to deceive him. Right? Because the guy, you're going to have an eternity to tell him, I told you so. Yeah. Right? But that, that's the fundamental difference between the two. Now, I'm saying, what is the difference between the two? What is the, how do you distinguish between what a priest does? Because they both have rituals. They both offer sacrifice. They both wear strange clothing. And they both have candles. And they both have incense. What's the difference? Well, that's the difference. That's the fundamental distinguishing 
uh, factor between a magician and a priest? Sure. There is no quick question. But go ahead. Yeah, you can be very easily deceived about magic and thinking there is such thing as white magic and black magic. And, um, the intent, white and black indicates intent. Your intent is to do good through magical means. All right? So white magic people want to only you know, impart blessing and they want to be able to do good, you know, get a tomato to grow or something. Right? And the idea is that black magic is just about you know, being evil and stuff. But fundamentally it's all a trick. Because your source and what you're doing is wrong. You're, you're, you're going against nature. You're trying, to acquire, um, you're trying to acquire powers you do not have by means that are extremely dangerous and are against the express will of God. And number two, the source is wrong. So they're going against God's will. So therefore it can never be good. There is what we call the, if you will, the short-term good and the long-term good. Think about that. How do I know something is good? You only know if something is good by its end consequence. So fundamentally, we'll only know when something is good at the end of the world. When all actions will come to a close, and you can trace back the, 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 the chain of causality, right? and you can say, well, because this person did this, that happened, and this other thing happened, da -da 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 -da, and you can therefore weigh what is good and what is not. Right? All we know is very extremely uh, limited. Having said that, there is another way to know that something is good. That's based on what the church teaches us and what God told us is good. Do the commandments, obey the church, praise God. That's always good. Not complicated, right? In the case of magic, magic fundamentally is evil and only evil. Now, I don't necessarily condemn or say never read any book that talk about magical means. Because the way you couch it in the book is very important. So, if you show a book where actually somebody who practices magic, and in a very, you, you essentially show how bad it is to use magic, you're doing somebody a service. On the other hand, if you show that magic is actually good, you're doing somebody a disservice. And it could be a profound one. Yes. Incantations. That's even worse. So again, there's a, a whole gradation. There is what I call techno-magic, where really it's not so much magic as it is a covert technical way of doing stuff. Like, for instance, the magical treehouse, whatever. I know some people take issue, the magic treehouse or whatever. Yeah, some people take issue with the magic in it, but really it's a device to get kids interested in learning about Venice in the 17th century. All right. Uh, is that the best? No, it would be nice if kids were interested to read about Venice in the 17th century without any device. Could be whatever, exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. That's, so, therefore, it's not a big deal, in my view. It's not something that I would really stop to think too much about. Something like Harry Potter, on the other hand. Now, that is really evil. Because she uses real incantation. They're not complete. They're partial. But they're real. And my understanding right now, she's writing a book of incantation. Yes. The whole thing. The real thing. So for people to practice real, magic. Not that she no, 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 no. Uh, apparently, she is herself a witch. The she's a professed witch. Witch, witch yeah. So she uses things that have been... The magical, the magical formula you have to follow and say and do in order to get what you want. Yeah. So, in The Lord of the Rings, for instance, what is very interesting about uh, uh, Tolkien is that... Um, 
the only beings in the book of Tolkien that actually practice something resembling magic are non-humans. So Gandalf is not a human being. He's a Valar, some sort of a spirit thing, right? And the only guy who tried to, to and every time he shows, he shows very clearly that when we, human or uh, hobbit, try to touch that stuff, the ring or the orb or whatever, dire consequences happen. It's never to the good. Or what's his name? Uh, the brother of the other guy. Yes, Boromir, right? Corrupt. So, Sauron, corrupt. Exactly. He, exactly. He shows the source very clearly and he to- tells you it's not good for you. So that's a very good use of, it's a very good way of talking about magic. So you have, we have to discern, right? Gollum, perfect example, right? Etc., etc. All right. So that's, that's how we have to be very discerning about that sort of stuff. Ah, that's exactly the point. Right? By the time the temple, by the time the second temple, the third temple was built and Jesus was around it, there were over 660 laws you had to obey in order to stay clean. And the Pharisees and the scribes who stayed clean equated that with holiness. That's what it meant to be holy. So here comes Jesus with his disciple walking through the field, it's a Sabbath, and they take grains and start eating. Let's work. You're just working, right? I mean, the, the rabbis had debates over whether you could actually tie the laces of your sandals on a Sabbath or not. How far could you walk before you broke the law? Not, they didn't count their steps, but the distance from where you lived it could be no longer than a mile, I think, before it was considered to be work. They couldn't cook. They couldn't do anything. They took it they took the letter of the law and emptied it from its content. That He was doing work. Because God, in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gave them laws. Okay? That's a good question. He gave them laws. During the temple time, they added to those their own. And equated those with the laws of Moses. Yeah? Yes? No, he was... The, okay. This business of him carrying... Remember what I told you, oftentimes in Scripture you have the part, and I still am trying to figure out what, what figure of speech this is, where the part speaks for the whole. And I need to look it up. All right? It's a figure of speech, where the part speaks for the whole. The reason why he was stoned wasn't just because he was gear- carrying sticks. All right? If I see you walking outside your house, carrying a little box containing wax and you're walking to your car, I can infer by what you're carrying what you're about to do, can't I? Yeah? That's how you have to take that. He was, in, he was carrying sticks. He's going to start the fire, and starting the fire meant a whole bunch of stuff they wanted to do around that. Yeah? You see that? All right. Chapter 20. In chapter 20... Very important event happens. Well, first, Miriam died. And all we hear is, she died and they buried her there. Okay? She died and they buried her there. That's very important because that tells you that she was not part of the people who rebelled. Because she received burial. Yeah? Okay. Now, what, what else happens in this chapter? Well, let's see. They go to the wilderness of Zin, which is much hotter than what they were before. Because they were trying to cross into the 
they're preparing to cross into the Holy Land. So they're now trying to cross from the east, sort of from Jordan. A lot hotter. Okay? They're not happy. So, what do they say? Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and said, Would that we have died when our brethren died before the Lord? Why have you brought this assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain, figs, vines, pomegranates. Why are I mentioning grains, figs, um, vines, and pomegranates? Because those are the four things that the scouts said they found in the promised land. Okay? And there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went before the Lord, the presence of the assembly, to the door of the tent of the meeting, and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, Notice, this time, God doesn't get upset. Why? Because their complaint is legitimate. There is no water. Now, the way they're going about it, right? So, it'd be like a kid who's had a long day and was tired. And you get home, and you say, I'm going to, and you say, okay, we're going to prepare dinner. We're going to eat in half an hour. And he just loses it. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He want to eat right now. He's, what do you do? You give him a beating? No. You don't give the kid a beating. You understand the kid is tired. Right? Very different than if you just came out at a very, very nice brunch and it is half an hour after and the kid comes and asks for an ice cream and you say no and he has a temper tantrum. You probably won't behave the same way toward the kid. Right? You notice the paternal aspect of God. He can put up with this versus what happened before, which is outright rebellion against him. Because then, with Korah, the truth was presented as lie. And the lie was presented as truth. Here, no such thing is happening. Yeah, they're still long for Egypt, true. But they're not saying, God is a murderer, he brought us here to kill us. Egypt is better. They're simply saying, why did you come here? We're dying. So God, right? what would have been better? Back to your will be done. You're on the highway. It's hot. You've been sitting there for half an hour. Right? Because we like to blame somebody else. The woman you put in the garden, she gave me the apple and I ate. Who amongst us can say has a valid complaint? Who can complain validly? There's only one, and she never did. But apart from Our Lady, who could really complain? See, this is my point. Instead of complaining, if we can stop ourselves and think, or start counting the blessings, see, we take complaint for granted, right? We, take, we can complain as one of our fundamental rights. Why are we? We are slaves to sin. We were hopeless. We were going to hell because of our own sins. He came, God the Father, sent His only beloved Son who died on the cross for us and gave nothing out of it. Nothing. When Jesus went back to heaven, He didn't gain one ounce of glory that He didn't have before. He gained nothing. He freed us from this. And then He said, 
I'm going to make you my sisters, meaning you're going to be the sons and daughters of my Father in Heaven. Do you understand what that means to be the daughters of God the Father? Do you? Let me tell you. It is something that will exceed your imagination. You're going to be made in the image of Jesus in Heaven, right? Yes? Okay, I'm going to hear it. I want, you, I want to hear it. Yes? All right. How was this world created? In Him, through Him, and with Him. Yeah? You're going to be made in the image of Jesus. Are you connecting those two statements I just made right now? No, I can tell. God, the Father, will be more than happy to create a whole universe through you, for you. Can you begin to imagine what that means? No. That's God the Father. Because He is life. And when this universe comes to an end, who says that God, the life-giving Father, is going to stop giving life? Nowhere did Jesus ever say that. He speaks of the close of this age, meaning the age of the church, but He never says that afterwards there will be no more creation. Never said that. Eyes has not seen and ears has not, have not heard what prepared for We can't even begin to imagine what that means. But, but we, every one of us, were born, right, with a PhD in complaining. <laughs> we are experts at it. We dodge any one who's trying to rebuke us and tell us to stop. We have 14,000 reasons in our back pocket, another 200,000 in reserves, just in case those are not sufficient. We know how to complain. None of us has the right to complain. Now here's the interesting part. Then Moses and Aaron went before the presence of the assembly. All right. Now, the Lord said to Moses, Take the rod and assemble your congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them. So you shall give drink to the congregation and their cattle. What rock is God talking about? In the book of Deuteronomy, there was another event where they were all thirsty. God told Moses, take that rock, take that staff, the same staff he used in Egypt, and strike the rock that was next to a big rock. Strike the rock once, and it will yield its water. Moses did that. That was close to Sinai. Now, they're somewhere close to Jordan. It's like the other side. But God says, the rock, not a rock. So what do we conclude about that rock? Yeah, the rock was following them. Now, who said that? Who said that the rock was following them? Okay. The letter to the Hebrews. And the rock was Christ. In the letter to the Hebrews. Now, why? And that's so powerful. Remember what we just read about the red heifer? It continues in this chapter. Heifer. Jesus Christ. Let's go back to the cross. When did water come from Jesus' side? 
when so somebody with a rod, a spear, struck him, and water came forth. Yeah? That's the water. That's the life-giving water that comes from the side of Jesus. Yes? Okay. What does the priest do at Mass? He speaks, and water flows. Yeah, you see the Mass? Jesus was struck once, never twice. The priest speaks the word of consecration, and the ever and the water, the ever living water flows. Yeah? Do you understand? No? Moses struck the rock once, water came through. Now God tells him, Speak to the rock, and the rock will yield your water. The water. Don't strike it. Jesus was struck once. The priest does not strike Jesus on the altar. He speaks the words of consecration. Yeah? Do you see that? What does Moses do? More than that. He does something else. Yeah. It's not just the fact that it's twice. He says this. The key is what he says. Hear now, you rebels. Verse 10. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Not shall the Lord, shall we. Back to what we were saying, magical act. And he strikes the rock twice. Water comes forth. Water comes forth. He got what he wanted. He didn't know what he got though. Because God's anger flared immediately against him. He said, because you've committed that sin against me, you shall not enter the Holy Land. It's a grave sin that they've committed. You know, that would take a whole book. Why did the devil do it? Why did Adam do it? Why did Moses do it? Why do we do it? Same reason. You explain one, you explain the other. You get it? Tired, frustrated, had it with these people... Had it with the Lord, just out of human weakness. He fell. Not even Moses could stay holy. Amen, amen, I say to you. John the Baptist is indeed Isaiah who came back. And he is the greatest amongst all the prophets. Yet, the least of the children of the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? Because of the graces that we receive. Now I shall hasten to say that that saying of our Lord was true of John the Baptist while he was on earth. Okay? Let us not be conceited in thinking that somehow we're greater than St. John the Baptist in heaven. He's not considered. He is a saint. St. John is on the cusp between the two. And we celebrate two of his feast days. We celebrate his birthday and the day he died. Yeah, no, he is a great saint. By the way, what was that word used here? The, what is it? Was it a piece of wood? The rock. Right? It's a paradox. Physically, a rock can't give water. Right? Yet water comes out of the rock. What is, that, what is, God, what is Jesus teaching them? What is God teaching them? The rock represents what? Not, yeah, yeah. But immediately it represents what? What were the Ten Commandments written on? Rock. 
No. What, what, remember when I asked this question in Deuteronomy, I mean in, in Exodus, why did God write the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, not tablets of gold or platinum or something else? Why stone? The answer is in Isaiah. Right? In Isaiah, Isaiah makes this prophecy that one day the Lord will take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And I shall write my law on their hearts. It's a rock because it represents who we are. We are hard as rocks. That's an Isaiah. Yeah. We are hard as rocks. And I would say to all of you to pray, to pray to the Lord, to give you a real understanding, a true understanding of the hardness of your heart. You know how we call this in Catholic theology, what I just said? There's another word for it. We call it contrition. There is no contrition until you understand how hard your heart is. Yours, mine's, everybody. There is no real contrition without that sense of the hardness of our heart. But when we get that, we begin to realize the graces that God put in our lives. And sometimes God really has to work on us with a jackhammer. We don't give Him no choices sometimes. But that's the hardness of our heart. Another way for you to get an inkling of the hardness of your heart, two things I'll say to you. If you can't say I'm sorry easily, even when you're not in the wrong, especially when you're not in the wrong, especially when you didn't do anything wrong, you cannot say I'm sorry right away, readily. You're in the three to six feet thickness on your heart in that neighborhood. That's one. Two, if you can't put up with failures, you had an exam, you had something other, it's the end of the world. I mean, just about the end of the world. Never mind that you know, three million people are dying of hunger right now in Africa or whatever. That's the biggest problem in the whole wide world is right before. Okay? You can layer another about you know, two or three feet on top of that. This is all signs of hardness of heart. When you're not attentive to the needs of others around you, when you're a teenager and an older teenager, or when you're married and you're not able to pick up on clues that people need your help, it's hardness of heart. As simple as that. So it's not, it doesn't take a PhD in, you know, psychology to figure out what the hardness of heart really means. It's just in front of us. We just have to say it. That's why it was a rock. Now, the rock gave water. What's a, what a paradox this is. How paradoxical for a rock to pour forth water. Just because you spoke to the rock. Well, what is that speaking is? What is that word coming out? It's the word of God. Speak to the rock. It's the word of God. And that's the power of the word of God to affect that change in us, that even when our heart is hardened, God can still pour forth the water of grace. Right? That's, well, because of the power that God gave him initially with that staff, when he hit the rock twice, God, God followed the lead. But there are consequences to what Moses did. Yeah. So you understand when he told Peter, you are rock. Okay, that's the rock. That's the rock that gives water. That's the miraculous rock that actually 
gave people life. That's what rock means. And then you have the Protestant arguing over the feminine versus the masculine in the Greek. Thinking that grammar can fix the problem. It's this rock that God, that Jesus has in mind. When he says, you are rock, and on this rock I will build. When he said, I will build my church, you have a rock that gives water. You understand? The only other image where we have a rock giving water is in the vision of Ezekiel, where the temple, the foundation of the temple, water flows from the foundation of the temple out to nourish the world. This is what he said to Peter. There's all these, again, intertextual echo that happen in the mind of the apostles or whomever is reflecting on Scripture to understand the depth of what Jesus said. And not whether it was... a. You know, Petros versus Petras, and sort of, anyhow. Okay. As a result of this, they tried to pass through Edom. Now, who's Edom? You remember Edom now? Who's Edom? Edom is a nickname for another guy. Esau. Esau, thank you. Who's Esau? He is the older brother of of Jacob, and he became known as Edom, Because of what? Because he sold his blessings for a bowl of lentil. Red lentil. Edom means red. Okay? The Edomites, therefore, are blood relatives to the Israelites. They're cousins. They're basically saying, hey cousin, let us pass through your territory and we'll just go over to the place where we're supposed to go. You're not going to pass. Look, we're not going to touch anything. And even if we touch anything, we'll pay for it. They show up with an army. You're not going through. Why? There is no blessing. You struck the rock. You did something that was liturgically, fundamentally wrong. Here is the consequence. You're not going to get the world fixed up when you mess the liturgy. Not going to happen. Don't count on it. You get it? You can't get your life in order if you don't worship in order. You can't get peace in your heart if you're not yearning for the Mass. Just not gonna, God is not going to deceive you. Mass is the language of heaven. Mass is what you are made for. And if you can't get that one right, He's not going to give you the rest. Otherwise, He's cruel. You understand? Alright. And then, I'm closing up now here. Closing, closing the study. But it's important. God announces to Moses that Aaron is about to die. So they go up the mountain with Eleazar. And when they came back down, Eleazar is now the high priest. And the interesting thing is that the language used here is used only for the patriarchs. He will be, he shall be joined to his forefathers. Which was a language used to indicate the abode of the dead. And it's only used with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and Aaron, and Aaron. But, but, the interesting thing in this, it, it can neither mean to die, or, nor to be buried in a family tomb. Rather, it means to be reunited with one's ancestors, and refers to the afterlife in Sheol. Hence, the opposite term, be cut off from one's ancestors, means to be denied 
the afterlife. Right? Now, Aaron was reunited with his in Sheol, but, rather, but when Jesus spoke to them, to the Pharisees, when they, remember the Pharisees did not believe, the Sadducees, I'm sorry, did not believe in the afterlife. The Sadducees, who were, from whom most of the priests of the temple came, did not believe in the resurrection. So they came to Jesus and put them, to them this particular riddle. The woman married the first time, no children, marries the second brother, the third, all the way seven. In the afterlife, who is she the wife of? And Jesus said, have not you read what, what, what Scripture says? I am the Lord of Abraham, of Isaac, and of, and of Jacob. Therefore, I am the Lord of the living, not the dead. In saying this, when Jesus said that, he's canonizing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right away. Not Aaron. Now, he also excluded Joseph, but there's really good reasons to think that Joseph joined them. But if you now reflect on the life of Aaron, he was mourned 30 days. They mourned him for 30 days. Okay? So therefore he was very popular. But if you reflect on his life as a high priest, you cannot really say, you know, this is a man of God. He seldom spoke to God. We are seldom aware what he did and didn't do other than the golden calf. He murmured against Moses with Miriam, his sister. So God is not about popularity contest. God is not interested in how popular you are or how popular you're going to be. And if you measure your own worth by a popularity contest, you're secretly denying God's love for you. God is not interested in a popularity contest. When you're a little older and you're looking for a husband, you girls sitting here, if that's what God calls you to, don't think you need to become popular to find the right guy. God will take care of that for you. Trust Him. I mean, if He can make a rock give water, He can make a guy speak to you. You get that? Trust in Him. It's not a popularity context. Remember that. Yeah? So in the end, you're not left with a sense of awe and wonder when you think about Aaron's death. If anything, you're left with a sense of dread. And you reflect on your own life. One day, God, who knows that appointed day, will come to you and you say, it's time. You're going up that mountain and you're not coming back. It's over. How are you going to receive that news? And please, when I say one day, don't add when I'm old. You don't know when that day is. It might be in five minutes from now. Are you ready? That's the question. Yeah? Okay. Do you have questions for me? So the, the, the hyssop is the bitterness, the suffering, right? The sacrifice that um, really the Holy Trinity agreed to do. Right? That's what the hyssop is. The, um, the, the crimson stuff, the crimson yard, represents the high priesthood, the priesthood and the inner sanctuary. Because that same material was used in both. And then the cedar wood is the fragrance, the smell. Right? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which turns that bitter death into a good smell, meaning something acceptable to God. Yeah? 
The red heifer is Jesus carrying his, uh, Jesus' blood, he's carrying his cross. Yeah? It's ca- Jesus carrying the yoke. Alright? It was the same rock, indeed. Yes. And scripture says very explicitly, that rock followed them. Wherever they went, the rock was with them. No, in that case, it's a rock. It's a real big boulder. They didn't. The rock moved. But if you think about the fact that they're moving, there's a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And every time they look at the Holy of Holies, the, great, the, the glory of God shines before them. What's the rock in the mix? Of course they didn't notice the rock. Which makes it even worse. Because the rock was with them. Spoken to. Spoken to. Don't allow an over-rational mind right, to prevent an extraordinary intervention of God, particularly in a part of Scripture where the whole thing is extraordinary. The whole of Exodus and Numbers is completely extraordinary and unique because God's presence is overbearing in a sense. He's always there. He's constantly talking to them. Non-stop, through the whole period. And it stops once Joshua enters the Holy Land. It becomes very much, becomes more remote. And only through the prophets. And you know the scripture doesn't do that all the way through. It's not that there are these events happening all the way through scripture. It's only in that period. And after that it stops. It becomes a very rare event. Requiring the intervention of a prophet. Which we, then start to, we call them miracles. Right? But that's about it. But here it's very much extraordinary. Yes. Not at all. No. You can take an iPad to the church. And if you're reading on it. Or your phone. Sometimes I, I have to say praise before the Blessed Sacrament. And I don't have the people. So I bring up my phone. And I get the, and I'm saying the prayer. No. God, has, God is not opposed to the right, rightful use of technology. Alright. Okay. So let's finish with the word of prayer. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.